Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing the economy and finance. I'm your host and producer, Stevie Manns. From the rise of AI, banking collapses, inflation and geopolitical changes, 2023 has kept us busy with no shortage of market-moving events. Now, as we wrap up the year in our final episode for 2023, we'll look at how the year's biggest stories have impacted economies and how these events impact what's to come in the new year, but with a twist. Today, we're taking a look back on 2023 with a special holiday quiz edition of The Bid. If you've been listening to episodes of the podcast this year, then you should be able to play along and see how you do compared to our budding quiz contestants. My guests today are eager quizgoers and familiar voices to bid listeners. We have Oscar Polito, your regular bid host with the most, and ETF expert and bid regular, Gargi Palchaudry. Oscar and Gargi will play for bragging rights and the esteemed title of the bid quiz winner in our inaugural holiday quiz, and perhaps a very special prize at the end. So Oscar and Gargi, Welcome to this special holiday quiz edition of The Bid. Thank you for having me, Stevie. Thank you, Stevie. I'm excited. So, Oscar, how does it feel to be in the guest chair today? It's actually the same chair, but I'm playing (laughs) a different role. I'll let you know in a couple minutes. Okay. Well, let's kick off. For the benefit of our listeners, Oscar's buzzer sounds like this. And Gargi's sounds like this. Let's start with interest rates. When did interest rates reach their peak in the US? And what is the current interest rate? July of 2023 and 5.375%. You are correct. (laughs) Gargi lives on the Federal Reserve's website, so in fairness. I love that. Okay, let's dive into this a bit more. So we're a couple of weeks post-Black Friday. We're now into the full holiday season. Gargi, how is consumer sentiment right now? So consumers are still strong, but slowing. And you bring up Black Friday. It was an interesting phenomenon that we saw. There was still spending, certainly more online than brick and mortar stores. But what we saw pick up was a lot of that buy now and pay later type behavior. So what that hints at is a consumer that's still feeling good about going out and spending. It has been a move away from traditional goods, things that you can touch and feel towards more of services for going for movies and entertainment and things like that. But there is a little bit of slowing down. We're already seeing that in various data points that are coming out. The slowing down just means that as we look into 2024, maybe don't expect the same sort of outcome from consumers as we saw in 2023, which was so robust. Oh, you've definitely described my spending habits and how (laughs) I'm planning for Christmas. Okay, let's turn to the job market. How many US jobs were created since January 2022? Oscar. I'm going to say 7 million. 8 million. Oscar, you have it. It was 7.4 million. Nice. Rounding to the nearest million. Uh, So what are some of the factors that have led to this strong job performance over the last two years? I think Gargi has more of the details, but my understanding is that a lot of the strength in the job market is simply the economy coming back from the pandemic. There were a lot of jobs lost during 2020. And so a lot of the strength we're seeing is just people coming back to work and the economy getting back to a more normalized form. Yeah, I love that answer. I think a couple of things in addition to that is people coming back to participate 
in the job market is really important. Particularly think back to the pandemic where many people, I'm sure many of our relatives, left the job market earlier than they would have taken retirement. And we needed people to come back to the job market to fulfill some of the gaps left. And what we saw in 2023, which we obviously are very happy about, is that participation of people in the job market started moving up again. Particularly for women between the ages of 25 to 54, that participation rate has gone up. Participation from immigrants, foreign-born, that is at the highest. So that's another exciting thing. And then I'll also say that there were some areas of the economy. If you look at healthcare, so nurses, for example, very much in demand. If you look at education, teachers, for example, very much in demand. So when we look at all of these 7.4 million jobs that have been created, where they've come from, these particular sectors of the market, there is still demand there, which is great. And I think this shows that keeping wages higher, which has been the phenomenon over the last couple of years, has enticed people to come back to the labor market, which, of course, we like. I'm starting to wonder if I deserve the points for that answer. (laughs) You do. So from jobs to retirement, some of you may remember an episode with Anne Ackerley this year. What percentage of workplace savers in the U.S. feel on track to retire with the lifestyle they want? Oh, that was a tie. (laughs) Ladies first. Gargi. Less than 50. I'm going to say 50. Then, Oscar, you are correct. It was 56%. Oh, again, rounding. (laughs) Rounding. (laughs) But you were both so close. Can either of you tell me what is driving the drop? Yeah, a couple of things that I remember from the conversation with Anne is we've had market volatility. We had COVID. We've had the financial crisis. We've had plenty of scares in the markets over the last many years. I think that's part of it. Inflation, which Gargi's close to the inflation data month to month. I think people feel like that's eroding their savings. And then... Perhaps one other thing that I remember Anne talking about is the lack of retirement income, people feeling uncertain about how are they going to generate income in retirement. (laughs) Excellent answer. I'm glad to see you were paying attention during these recordings. (laughs) Every once in a while I do. (laughs) Well, one of the biggest winners this year was ETFs. So how much did investors put into the ETF market this year? 800 billion. Correct. Gargi, why did investors turn to ETFs in such a big way this year? Yeah, first of all, the different use cases of ETFs. So when investors think about building portfolio blocks, ETFs can be used as portfolio builders. So that's one of the main use cases. And of course, this year with markets having a great performance, with equity markets up globally, with bond markets somewhat positive, I think investors seeking income as well as growth and returns, that was one driver. Another one is the advent and the growth of active ETFs. So many investors coming into the market to express views actively using active ETFs. That's been a huge growth area of the market. And we saw that across the industry. I'd also say that investors trying to find more granular ways of expressing views. So if you wanted to have allocations to Indian equity markets, if you wanted to have allocations to Japanese equity markets, if you wanted to have allocations to a particular part of the fixed income markets, such as high yield, for example, again, granular ways of expressing your views on the market were also seen in ETF flows. And then lastly, I think many institutional investors using ETFs as a financial instrument of choice for them to get liquidity, especially in volatile times. I was waiting for you to say the word access, which I think was another theme when we talked to you and various others 
from our ETF business, but just that ability to access so many different parts of the market quite easily. Fantastic. Yes, of course. Very good. Okay. Name one commodity that investors often turn to in times of high volatility. Gargi. Yay. So I did do a podcast on this. So a little shameless self-promotion, but gold is one thing that we did talk about earlier this year, right? You that were was wearing not, gold. I was wearing gold. It was my wedding gold. And we had talked about the role that gold plays during times of geopolitical uncertainty. And obviously, at that time, we couldn't have possibly known some of the events that would have unfurled later this year. But we have seen investors turn to gold. We have seen gold outperform many other asset classes this year. So that's certainly an episode people should watch. I found it interesting, if I could jump in, that gold has done so well. I grew up understanding that when interest rates are high, gold really shouldn't do well because it doesn't pay you any interest. And so it should look less compelling. But you talked about the reasons why it still has managed to outperform. We did. We talked about how when real rates are high, because gold actually does not have a real rate associated with it. But one of the other things that I think we talked about was how it's not an inflation hedge necessarily, but a good geopolitical or uncertainty hedge. So I think, Oscar, to your point, yes, interest rates are high and investors are certainly, we talked about ETF inflows in $800 billion earlier this year, and a lot of that is in fixed income, we've certainly had investors flock towards fixed income for that higher interest rate and to optimize for that. But there is another role that gold provides in a portfolio, which is, of course, that of that uncertainty hedge. Yeah, that was one of my favorite episodes from this year, actually. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed wearing my wedding gold to it. (laughs) My buzzer looks like color gold. I need to get this thing going a little bit. It's sitting dormant. Well, let's see what happens with the next question, Oscar. From commodities to low carbon emissions, transportation accounts for approximately what percentage of global CO2 emissions today? I seem to remember this from the episode with Charlie Lilford. I was in London. I think he said like 25%, 20 to 25%, I'm going to say. You are correct. That was from the episode with Charlie Milford. That was a good one. What are some of the barriers that are preventing EVs from becoming more mainstream for a bonus point? Yeah, I thought he was going to say price, but actually over the course of the episode, he made the point that price is coming down and there are more producers of electric vehicles and they're getting better at scaling and there's government subsidies now. So price is less of the inhibitor. And the answer was actually the other thing that I thought, which was charging infrastructure or lack of sufficient charging infrastructure and people still having range anxiety, not sure about how far they can drive on a battery. And in the episode, I told him how I'm a recent buyer of an electric vehicle and I've experienced some of that as well. So that lack of charging infrastructure seemed to be the main impediment. Range anxiety. I love that terminology. I'm going to use it. And I've experienced that. It's like when your phone's about to run out of battery, you'll be okay most of the time. But if your car runs out of battery and you're somewhere you don't want to be, then you can see how that's a higher level of anxiety. Okay, next question. One recurring theme for 2023 has been AI. ChatGPT just celebrated its one-year birthday in November. And when we had Jeff Shen on the bid, he mentioned some breakthroughs for AI, one of which was when Deep Blue, the IBM supercomputer, beat chess world champion Garry Kasparov in a chess match. Can you tell me... What year did that chess match occur? 1996? Uh, mm, seven? Seven, yes, seven is correct. 
Let's round to the nearest something. <laughs> this is a theme here. So Yes, it was 1997. For a bonus point, can you tell me how many days did it take for ChatGPT to reach 1 million users? Less than 100. I think it was 53. It was actually five. Oh. Wow. <laughs> Which is less than 100. <laughs> Oscar, what do you see for the future of AI investing? Is there something that you're keeping an eye on maybe? Well, we've heard this from a couple speakers, which is that AI as an investable theme will remain prevalent, but it's where within the tech sector the winners will be that is maybe going to evolve. It's been a lot of the chip manufacturers and the semiconductor companies this year, but perhaps going forward, it's companies that are more involved in data, just the sheer quantities of data that are created and processed. And that just means different winners in years ahead versus maybe what's been the winners this year. Yeah. One of the things that I learned when I was listening to Jeff was just this idea of how there are winners and losers. This is where active management plays a great role. And obviously, Jeff and their team are fantastic at this and all the work they've done. And I also think that maybe next year or even sooner than that, when you have other people talking about AI on the bid, I think there'll be a lot more talk about the advances in healthcare. There'll be a lot more talk about the advances that AI has brought to education. Now we're talking specifically about just the tech sector, and I can't wait to see how we're talking about it in the healthcare sector. We also learned about the game Go, by the way, which I had never heard about, which is probably my fault, but Something about the number of moves in that game is greater than the number of atoms. Was it on the planet or something? Yeah, that's what he said, because there's so many outcomes in that game. He subsequently said the world champion in Go then retired from the game after losing to the AI machine. You know, AI is coming for us all. Let's zoom out and look at global trends for a moment. The economy of which country grew by 5% in 2023 and is expected to be the fastest growing in coming years? I think it's mine. And if you can't tell from the accent, that's India. <laughs> Correct. So, Gargi, what are some of the key attributes from India that is helping your wonderful country thrive? The easy one that we would have spoken about and will continue to speak about is demographics. Looking at a country with a young population, a population that is between the ages of 25 to 35, the highest population in that age group, obviously leads to a more productive economy. So that's number one. But I think more importantly, and I think coming to the forefront now more and more, is it's a digitized economy. It's one where most of the population have access. They've gone from not having a phone to having cell phones to do all of their shopping, investing, etc. So there is that digitized economy, and I think there's a lot of potential there. And then another feature that I'm really excited about is outside of the advances that India can have in the AI space, the adoption of AI in India. I was surprised that India and many other EM countries have actually have a higher rate of AI adoption. So that I think can reap benefits in the decades to come. And then lastly, from an infrastructure perspective, the government has done a lot and is trying to do a lot to improve roads and railways and the efficiency that brings about in the economy. So if you combine all of that, it's not a single-pronged approach. It's not just about the demographic dividends that we often talk about, but it's also about digitization. It's also about technology. It's also about infrastructure. And I think all of that adds to a 
picture where, yeah, Indian equities can look rich, certainly by our valuation metrics, they do. But I think investors are taking note of this as being another long-term theme in your portfolio that's going to reap benefits for the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. And Oscar, you recently had a great conversation with Jeff Spiegel on emerging markets. Were there any other emerging markets of note from that episode? First of all, I feel like I'm playing against IBM's Watson, giving all this great information. But yeah, actually, Jeff mentioned India. He talked about Mexico as well as another country that benefits from nearshoring and this environment post the pandemic where companies are moving their supply chains closer to home. Before the pandemic, we talked about globalization and the need to lower cost or the desire for companies to lower their cost. And so seeking out supply chains that in some cases were far and wide. But nearshoring, meaning you're bringing those supply chains closer to home and Mexico as a friendly neighbor to the south of the U.S. stands to benefit from this trend. So that was another country he talked about. Great answers from both of you. Okay, one final question. Staying global. Oh, no. What is one country, not the U.S., that will benefit from nearshoring? <laughs> I know that. Can I buzz in? You may. Mexico? Correct. <laughs> We have a little bit of a sixth sense going in fairness. <laughs> yeah, we do. We've been working together for so long now. You know what? Seeing as you answered that so well, I'll give you a follow-up. What considerations should investors take into account as global rewiring continues to trend? I think if I remember Jeff's comment, he used this term, not only nearshoring, but friendshoring, I think was the other term he talked about, which is not only the proximity of a country, but just the diplomatic relationship that countries have could be very beneficial as you think about where to source your supply chain and Mexico being a beneficiary of that. Just to maybe add to that, I think there are a few others. Obviously, Mexico, great one. But I think if we look at the global south more broadly, I think thinking about the opportunities in Indonesia, in Vietnam, some of the other countries that might replace some of the other broader partners that the U.S. has had as a big trading partner. So thinking about where else we can French shore to and from. And I think investors will, over the next few years, turn to these countries as sources of returns. Vietnam is a good one that comes to mind. Again, very favorable demographics. Indonesia is another one. And I can't wait to see how those economies evolve and their markets evolve over the next few years. Alt-Asia is what he said. We like Global South, I think. Yeah, I like that better. (laughs) Okay, I have tallied up the scores and it is my great honor to announce that our official runner-up for the first inaugural bid holiday quiz, it's Oscar Polito with five points. Very good. Thank you. And our winner, our esteemed winner with bragging rights in this wonderful limited edition, one of a kind, the bid podcast mug is Gargi Palchowdhury with six points. Yes. Wonderful. Well done. Thank you. This means a lot to me. I have a long speech prepared, but we don't have time for it. But <laughs> listen to it when I'm invited back to the next bit. Congrats, Gargi. Thank you, Oscar. Thanks for letting me win. <laughs> Thank you both so much for your insights and playing along today and being such good sports. Oscar, I have to say thank you so much for being such a wonderful host and partner of The Bid this year. Oscar and Gargi, thank you once again. Thank you for having thank us. For having this us. was fun. Let's do it again. Can we do this again next year? Yes. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Bid. I hope you were playing along and you enjoyed yourself. Oscar will be back in the hosting seat as of January 5th with weekly episodes on Fridays. From all of us here at The Bid Podcast, here's wishing you a happy and healthy holiday season. 
This content is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or a solicitation. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. In the UK and non-European economic area countries, this is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In the European economic area, this is authorised and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. For full disclosures, go to blackrock.com slash corporate slash compliance slash bid dash disclosures.